0: Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcasts, the podcast with two mixed-race hosts talking about anything and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts and opinions, and put everything together here to share with all of you.
1: I'm Vanessa. And I'm Melissa. Today's episode, episode number 42, is Mixed DNA and Colorism. The concept of colorism has come up between Vanessa and I quite a few times in the past week. And we thought it best to put an episode together because we had some questions and we wanted answers. We'll take a look at what colorism is, how the term came to be, and we'll share some stories we found online from individuals who have experienced colorism and we'll share some of our own experiences and thoughts.
0: I don't think I noticed as much as I do now uh, about people using microaggressions towards me until I started doing this podcast with you. I think the generation now will be able to spot these things more quickly and stand up for themselves, not like how we were raised Before. Well, I guess it was never pointed out to me because I'm sure my mom's generation didn't realize the microaggressions either. So that's probably it wasn't brought to my attention. Did your parents do that?
1: Or they didn't know either? I don't think they necessarily brought the term microaggression to me or explained what it is or not even what it is, but how it works, even if the word microaggression wasn't used. So I'm going to say a big resounding no. No, definitely not something discussed growing up. But I'm
0: sure they experienced it as well. Well, of course they did. By definition, colorism is the practice of favoring lighter skin over darker skin. The preference for lighter skin can be seen within any racial or ethnic background. Many people, including ourselves, before we started researching this episode, thought this was a term exclusively used for black people. We weren't sure if the term carried over to other skin colors or ethnicities, and the term does in fact transfer over, so that's very important to note because colorism is rooted in racism, and obviously that's an issue for all races. Colleen Campbell, a PhD candidate in sociology and African studies at Princeton, noted that when we collectively think of racism, we generally think of anti-black institutional processes that entrench whiteness at the top of social hierarchy. Further, The preference of lighter skin is a result of slavery, and since the times of slavery, there are many methods in which people have used, and continue to use, to determine someone's value to society.
1: During times of enslavement of Black people, those with lighter skin tones generally received preferential treatment. This was usually seen with mixed-race children, who had one enslaved parent and another who was a master or an owner. People's logic for the preferential treatment of black people with lighter skin was that their features were more, quote-unquote, European, which was of closer proximity to whiteness. With this train of thinking, this is where we see the one-drop rule unfortunately come to light, where for so many, it didn't even matter if your skin was lighter. If you had even one ancestor that was black, you were black. After slavery was abolished, especially within the U.S., there were a lot of what was known as blue vein societies, which was a way in which Black people were being racist toward other Black people, specifically lighter-skinned Blacks looking down on darker-skinned Blacks. There were organizations and exclusive clubs for Blacks, but you couldn't get in or become a member if your skin wasn't light enough to see your veins through. It's from this practice of discrimination that the now-antiquated term mulatto played a large role.
0: Mixed-race slaves were given better posts, which were seen as privileges. They would work inside the home instead of out in the plantation fields. They would be gifted discarded clothing and items from their white masters and their families. In doing this, the white master class had sort of entranced these enslaved people into siding with them instead of against them because they were treated a smidgen better than the darker skinned enslaved people. This created even more of a hierarchical chain with whites at the top, mixed light skinned blacks in the middle and the darker-skinned enslaved people at the bottom. From early days of slavery, those working outside, their skin would obviously be darker from working in the sun than those that had the opportunity to work indoors. In many African nations, even today, there is still a lot of bias and blatant preferential treatment for fair skinned citizens. This is seen a lot in Southeast Asia as well, and we'll take a look at these practices and racial injustices of both these areas a little later on in today's episode.
1: Back to those blue vein societies we mentioned, they were formed by African-Americans whose skin was light enough that for the most part they could pass for white. There was the blue vein test we mentioned, but there was also the paper bag test in which one skin was compared to a paper bag. If your skin was the same shade or color of the bag or lighter than the bag, you could gain membership to the society. If not, you're out of luck.
0: Wait, question. Is it the, sa- the same color paper bags as now?
1: I would assume so. Or maybe they're a little bit different. But Similar, I guess. Probably. While in today's society we use the word mixed, among others, to describe someone who is half black, half white, back then the term was mulatto. This antiquated ethnic term originated from the Spanish word mulatto, which comes from the word mula, meaning mule, basically describing mixed-race people as the offspring of a horse and a donkey, which is clearly offensive and outdated, which is why it's basically been dropped from mainstream vernacular and preferred terms like mixed, biracial, multiracial, or multi-ethnic are used in its place.
0: In Seaford Town, where my mom grew up, there were a lot of Germans. Well, the what she called the town was Germantown because she was the only brown-skinned child. She was called mulatto while growing up. Um, I think back then it wasn't seen as nice as it is now. I mean, not that it's nice, but I think back then it was far meaner than it has been around this time. Because it's it was a lot in songs, Mulata, used as um what's it called? As a compliment. From Very Well Minds, we learned that colorism is a global concept, a global social construct that exists in many groups. Like we mentioned with different African nations as well as Southeast Asian nations. We can see colorism not only with Blacks, but with Asian communities, Middle Eastern communities, and Latinx communities, too. The concept manifests both interpersonally and systematically, as well as intraracially and interracially. The concept, and more so practices that involve colorism thought processes, can be crippling for darker-skinned individuals who see themselves come from poorer neighborhoods with less funding for education, healthcare, and community outreach. A lack of essential service for assistance and well-being affects people's well-being, both mentally and physically. I think I prefer, though, being called mulatta over being called a mutt. I hate that so much. It makes me feel like a dog. Well, it is a dog. Have you been called a mutt before? No. Oh.
1: Not that I recall I've ever been called a mutt. You have? Oh, my
0: God. Yes, I have. Yeah, I I would say something like, they're like, oh, what's your background? And I would say I'm mixed. And they're like, oh, like a mutt. I'm like, um, no, not like a mutt. Yeah, I'd, I never, I never said anything back. Cause I, what do you, what do you say to that? I don't know.
1: There's an old children's rhyme that sums up colorism in North America, mostly, I suppose. I don't remember it with this exact wording as I found on ThoughtCo, which is the one I'll share with you, but I do remember rhymes of this nature from growing up. Uh, so to share... If you're black, stay back, if you're brown, stick around, if you're yellow, you're mellow, if you're white, you're all right. And this is a children's rhyme. From play early on, we're conditioned to push the narratives of colorism, and thus, we unfortunately grow up conditioned to believe and feel certain ways about different types of people based on the color of their skin. Colorism needs to be fought with the same urgency as racism does. It's an obvious problem that we can see in modern day society. Disadvantages of colorism in society today can be seen in lower incomes, lower marriage rates, longer prison terms, and fewer job prospects. You can find the results of many studies online in which children were shown pictures of different people or given dolls of different skin tones and asked which were prettier or smart, and almost all children, dark skin, light skin, white, etc., attribute negative characteristics to those with the darker skin tones.
0: We, as humans, are a visual species, which is why skin color will always matter people should always try to remember as well, if possible, that over thousands of years, our skin color has adapted to where we are on earth and have settled, just a fact. Even if you yourself don't see color as a hindrance, the effects and discrimination people project and how people feel on these issues will always be around, and so will racism. Race matters and so does color, but they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Nobody can hide their skin color, it's an irrefutable visual fact, whereas race is a constructed thought process. Your skin is your skin, but how you identify is totally up to each individual. When you're filling out some sort of census form, the general racial categories are black, white, native Indian, and Asian. A lot of the time, Latin or Latinx isn't even an option. But what about all the people that can't only check one box, like Melissa and I? We're subjected to other, and I really hate other. It makes me feel like I am nothing, you know, just over in the pile of things that people don't understand. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be known as another. This is where discussions on race and colorism have to be more nuanced, and there has to be more to life than just black and white.
1: The term colorism is believed to have been coined by author and activist Alice Walker in an essay that appeared in her 1983 book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. Walker defined colorism as prejudicial or preferential treatment of same-race people based solely on their color. At the time, the early 80s, light-skinned preference had been common practice in the black community for generations. But here, Walker gave it a name, condemning it as evil, and noting that in order for African Americans to progress as a collective people, it needed to stop. Unfortunately, here we are, almost 30 years later, and colorism is all around us, and it's still very prevalent in black-on-black racism.
0: It seems like it's always going to be here. Last year, Allure put together a project called the Melanin Edit, in which they explored the different facets of a melanin-rich life. Through shared stories and experiences, readers like ourselves could hear firsthand stories of being born Black. It's a blessing, and it's also a burden. One of the stories we wanted to share is from Ziba Blay, a culture and film critic from Ghana. For all intended purposes of today's episode, yes, she is dark-skinned Black woman. Is as follows. I'll summarize, but we will, of course, share the full piece on our social accounts this week. In the middle of a depressive episode, like most women know all too well, Blay got her period and needed to leave the house for the first time in days to stock up on tampons. She didn't feel that great, nor was she looking her best, but she needed to get to the store. She threw on some track pants and a hoodie and with her hair a mess, she put a hood over her head and headed to her local pharmacy. Since it was her first time outside in days, she was taking it all in and leisurely strolling around the store, picking up what she needed, plus a couple of other items. She paid for her items and was making her way to the exit when the store manager, a lighter-skinned black woman, stopped her and asked to see what's in her bag, if she had anything in her pockets, and told her to remove her hood. Blay was shocked and was in such shock that she complied and even kept her mouth shut. She did, however, return the products and left the store, never to return again. I find it very sad that sometimes the visual descriptions of criminals or bad people can be confused with those wearing the same clothing or with similar facial features. I don't know, uh, that's a really hard situation. Maybe the manager experienced someone... The same in her store that was actually stealing? I don't know. But she can't think that every interaction is with a thief. You also just can't accuse someone without proof, but such is
1: life. Allure's Melanin Edit had two other stories I wanted to share, but I'm going to lump them together because the message I garnered from the two stories is similar. Both the stories, I'm going to paraphrase for you, have to do with little girls, little black girls, innocent children thinking and realizing too young that society judges them based on their skin tone. Michaela Angela Davis, a writer, producer, and image activist, moved to Washington, D.C. with her family in the second grade. She was asked by another student on her first day of school if she was albino or just light-skinned. Little Michaela didn't know what either meant, which to me is totally okay and understandable for a second grader. Little Michaela looked up the word albino in the dictionary that day and was crushed, and from that day forward she began to worry that her light pigmentation was a medical condition. She began to worry that her melanin was missing. And until she was old and wise and experienced enough to realize she was beautiful the way she was, she always wished deep down that she could be a dark-skinned beauty. The second story from Ate Jewel, a journalist, producer, and director, is about her love of MGM musicals at a young age. She looks back at the subliminal messages from those movies. There was nobody like her. Black, dark-skinned, full lips, a round, black body, with 4C-coiled hair. She never saw versions of herself in the movies. She loved and watched growing up. Like these two women, I can relate to both stories, being asked what I am, and not knowing how to answer, and a lot of experience about not seeing myself or anyone like me on TV or in the movies. One thing, however, that's always stuck with me into adulthood is that dark-skinned black girls never took me seriously as a West Indian, as a Trini, as if all Trinis were supposed to be black and dark-skinned. It kind of always made me feel less than because maybe I wasn't Trini enough, which is ridiculous when I look at it now.
0: I also got the same. There's no way like a brown person can be Jamaican or I'm not Jamaican enough, don't talk like a Jamaican, all these things when, where is the definition that they all have to act a certain way to be that background. Let's take a look at colorism in Africa. It is very evident in how the apartheid government in South Africa introduced the Population Registration Act that provided social distinction between not only black and white individuals, but also colored and mixed-race individuals. There were various tests performed to decide which group a person fell into, including the pencil test, in which a pencil was placed in one's hair to see if it would fall out. If the pencil didn't fall out, you were colored. Apartheid, which translated from the language of Africans, means apartness was the system of legislation that upheld segregationist policies against non-white citizens of South Africa. In 1948, South Africa, the all-white government began enforcing existing policies of segregation, where non-white citizens, the majority of the population, were forced to live in separate areas from whites and use different facilities. Blacks and whites could not marry, and black people had to carry passbooks with them at all times. Black people were also prohibited from entering urban areas, unless it was for work, and they were not allowed to set up their businesses in white areas. Contact between the two groups was limited, as everything from hospitals to beaches were segregated. Education for non-white citizens was also restricted. Despite opposition to apartheid within and outside the country, the laws remained in effect for approximately 50 years. In 1991, the government of President F.W. de Klerk, began to repeal most of the legislation that formed apartheid. And de Klerk, alongside with Nelson Mandela, would create a new constitution for South Africa.
1: In the 1950s, the African National Congress, the country's oldest black political party, initiated a mass mobilization against racial laws called the Defiance Campaign. Black workers boycotted white businesses, they went on strike, and they staged nonviolent protests. In 1960, South African police killed 69 peaceful protesters in what is now known as the Sharpeville Massacre. This caused nationwide dissent and a wave of strikes across the nation. The government declared a state of emergency, but that didn't stop 30,000 protesters from marching from Langa into Cape Town to demand the release of black leaders who had been arrested after the Sharpeville Massacre. The state of emergency made way for even more apartheid laws to be enacted and put into place. Nelson Mandela helped organize a paramilitary subgroup of the African National Congress, who realized the ineffectiveness of nonviolent protests and they embraced armed resistance instead. Mandela was arrested for treason in 1961 and was sentenced to life in prison for charges of sabotage in 1964. Resistance grew, especially among young people, and in June 1976, 10,000 black school children marched in protest against a new law that forced them to learn Afrikaans in school. In response, the police massacred over 100 protesters and chaos broke out in what is now known as the Soweto Uprising. In 1989, President P.W. Botha finally resigned and when de Klerk stepped in, things finally began to change and Mandela was released from prison. In 1994, Mandela became president of South Africa and South Africa finally adopted its new constitution that was not ruled by racial discrimination.
0: Too often, racism is seen as a social phenomenon that happens to black people, but it happens through black people as well. Black and white people receive the same narratives and images via the media, and these help perpetuate stereotypes like black criminality. Bias becomes ingrained in each and every one of us whether we want it to or not, or whether or not we believe it does. Project Implicit is a nonprofit organization and international collaborative of researchers who are interested in implicit social cognition. Their mission is to educate the public about bias and to provide a virtual laboratory for collecting data on the internet. They produce high impact research that forms the basis of our scientific knowledge about bias and disparities. We'll post a link to their website on our social accounts this week as well. But if you can't wait until then, search Project Implicit via Google and you'll find the link very easily through Harvard, .edu. Through IAT, Implicit Association Tests, your attitudes and beliefs can be measured. Basically, it measures attitudes and beliefs that people may be unwilling or unable to report about themselves. It can show you an implicit attitude you maybe didn't even realize you had. Project Implicit tests many things like race, sexuality, religion, skin tone, age, etc.
1: Vanessa and I each took the race tests and the skin color tests. And, apparently, I am a racist. (laughs) I mean, that's not what the result comes out and says, but that's how I feel now after reading the result. I received a slight preference of European American over African American. And for skin tone, I have a strong automatic preference for light skin over dark. And now I hate myself.
0: Please don't hate yourself. You are not racist. I don't think you are. Well, I know you aren't. Uh, but to be fair, the test does try to confuse your eyes and the word placement, how it switches back and forth. So it may not be that accurate because you are very far from racist, like I said. I, th- I think it trips you up maybe to be racist.
1: Hmm. No, but hmm. I don't I don't think it's necessarily telling you you are racist. Race. Yeah, it's just like I don't know the logic in it. Like I'd have to do more research on it, like how the test. How you choose what the test throws at you and whatever the logic is between it but i don't know Um, i am what i did not know that i am that's true
0: i am what i knew i was but not the skin tone one so when i did the race test i was neutral like i didn't like or dislike african americans or europeans uh, european americans any differently Um, and on the skin tone one, it said I was slightly towards lighter skin, but I feel like I messed up a couple times pressing on the words, but it's like, like you said earlier, you know, black is black criminality. So it would show bad or word bad. Well, I guess everybody can do it, but I feel like the way it does it is supposed to trip you up or subconsciously. That's what you put. So I don't know.
1: The article I learned about this test from was written for the Atlantic by a Mr. Theodore R. Johnson, who is black, and he got the same race result I did at first. Slight preference for European American over African American. In his article, which we'll share in our social accounts this week, he said it took him four tries at the test before he got a neutral result. Maybe if I did it more than once, my result would change. I didn't have time to do it more than once because I don't have time to do many things, but unfortunately, I actually feel like your first attempt though would be more honest because you would learn the ways of the test better each time you go, as you would with any kind of test, right?
0: Yeah, and then you could
1: Yeah, which I guess would it, I manipulate guess. your results. So I would urge all of the listeners, all of all ten to fifteen of you, to please try out the test, any of them, and you may be surprised by the results like I was.
0: In keeping with the topic of skin color, light or dark. Let's take a look at the beauty industry and its role on skin color prejudices and stereotypes. Nowadays, it is very easy to set up an appointment, pay your money, and restore the lost glow from your skin tone. There's everything from laser treatments to chemical peels to bleaching. Whitening treatments in Canada range from approximately $200 a session and upward depending on the area of the body you are working on. Skin lightening treatments aim to reduce melanin content in your skin. For some reason, this can be necessary in the treatment of dark spots that can be caused by melasma or harmful sun damage, but for others, treatments such as this are purely for aesthetics. In India, this is a multi-billion dollar industry, as many seek whiter and lighter shades of brown skin. There are many products on the market offering darker-skinned Indians a lighter, fairer, better version of themselves. There has been a lot of controversy surrounding fairness products that many are calling racist, including actor Abe Dale. He blasts his Bollywood peers for endorsing fairness brands and urges them to use their platforms to do something more meaningful. The industry is constantly on the rise and includes products like creams, face washes, deodorants, and even vaginal whitener. Well-known companies like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Nivea, and Garnier make these kinds of products, even though many contain harmful bleaching ingredients. A while ago, I watched a documentary on this subject uh, regarding whitening of the skin in Jamaica, uh, which apparently is pretty popular as well. So the interviewer was speaking with a stripper and what she does for better tips. So she said that most of the, the tips go to the light skin girls. So she wanted to bleach her skin for obvious reasons. Um, so she bought lightening cream, as well as covered herself in bleach. So similar or the same, I think, to the bleach we put on our hair, so that thick consistency. And after she covered her body in this bleach, she's uh, applied saran wrap to her body because apparently the heat makes uh, the whitening come faster. It was very, very messed up and sad to watch her try to rationalize what she's doing and make it seem like, it makes sense like it just seemed that she really disliked her skin her skin color that's all it seemed like you know and she wasn't that well off so i mean i guess you do what you have to to make money but it was it was such a shame
1: i haven't read or watched anything about it being a trend within the caribbean i mean i did a lot of research for this um for this particular episode and a lot of things that come up have to do with like africa or southeast asia but definitely, I can see how it would be a concerning issue in the Caribbean, for sure. I mean, it's a problem over here, so most likely a problem everywhere.
0: Well, yeah, and everybody being mixed there, you know, like like it's been put in their heads. So they may be prettier or, you know, sexier and getting more attention. When it's probably not even... The, like the case but maybe you feel that way like because it's already ingrained in you so you're like I, i'm very dark so nobody's ever gonna like me kind of thing
1: in a country like india where arranged marriages are still normal practice matrimonial advertisements describe a woman's complexion with darker skin women often paying a much higher dowry bullying and taunting of dark skinned women is very common and dark skin actors in bollywood complain of fewer roles we can blame the big companies for making products like this accessible But when there is demand, you can't expect businesses to not want to cater for profit. That is, of course, their end goal. Like we discussed with slavery practices in North America, the obsession with fair skin in the East also comes from a deep-seated cultural bias that equates being fair with being superior. The World Health Organization has banned active ingredients, hydrocoin, and mercury from products. But companies have found ways to work around that because India isn't the only country and the lighter skin game is the better game. You can find similar products for sale in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and parts of Africa. Although India, with its huge population, is definitely the biggest market.
0: I didn't realize they put merc- mercury in it. They're like rubbing poison all over your skin. It's insane. Ivory Coast and Ghana have also banned cosmetics containing hydroquinone, which is a cancer-causing chemical. Similar bans also exist in Japan, South Africa, and the EU. In 2017, Nivea pulled an ad with the tagline, White is Purity, after receiving a ton of obvious backlash as racist. In a story we found on CNN, Soma Banik was 14 years old when a neighbor told her mother how their child was benefiting from being lighter skinned by using a new cream. Bethamethasone, a steroid cream that on this side of the world is available only by prescription. Bennick's mother wanted her to have the best possible prospects in a country where lighter skin is more desirable. So her mother got the cream for her and she started using it. Within two months, people at school were noticing her changing good looks. But shortly after her highs, she started to feel a burning sensation when she was outside in the sunshine and had forgotten to apply the cream. But her and her mother had the whole no-pain-no-gain mentality move forward a few weeks, and her face started itching all the time, followed by acne, which she never had. And then a year later, hair began to grow all over her face. And all that for what? I don't know. How dare her mother do that to her beautiful child instead of, instead of teaching her child, you know, a better lesson.
1: Banic symptoms, as noted by dermatologists, itching, acne, and hirsutism, hair on your face, are signs of topical steroid damage caused by excessive or prolonged use of steroid creams. These types of creams can help medically with certain conditions, but they are only supposed to be used for short duration. The desire for hypopigmentation, lighter skin, leads many women to this type of cream, and it fuels a dependency. Once the skin is dependent on the cream, it's difficult for a person to stop using it. When you stop, you break out, or you get a rash or redness, so people continue, which leads to longer-term effects that are harder to treat. It took Bannock six years for her face to be weaned off the topical cream. Consequences are that she's been mocked about her appearance and her self-confidence drops significantly. The burning sensation and acne eventually went away, but the hair growth on her face is something she will continue to live with for the rest of her life.
0: While the world is evolving, and hopefully changing for the better, in today's world... Filters on Instagram and Snapchat often lighten users' skin tone in the name of enhancement, and the makeup industry fail to offer foundation and concealer options in an actual wide array of shades, which leaves consumers with dark skin to choose from only a few shades, most of which never even match. I can't remember the last time I just wanted a fun cheap lipstick from Walmart or shoppers, And every time, every damn time, the color never matched or it was the same color as my, my lips. I always wanted like a nude look and it was always my lip color, which was very annoying. You find that too. Well, you don't have that problem, but you find that too getting lip stuff, but you don't wear lipstick.
1: No, I never wear lipstick. Plus the outer line of my lip is so dark to begin with. I don't know. It's like you're
0: wearing permanent liner.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's from the black or from the Indian in me, but yeah, I look like I have permanent liner on.
0: You do, it looks nice. Thank you. You're welcome. In the world of makeup and fashion, the word nude generally describes a light shade of clothing or hosiery. And many popular fashion brands continue to have little to no dark skin models showing their products. Many fashion magazines like Vogue continue to lighten cover model skin with photo editing. We're seeing shifts in TV where we have mostly seen light-skinned or biracial actors in colored roles, or for romantic interests, we're seeing a bit more diversity. There is still a long way we need
1: to go. We can all start by recognizing instances of colorism and questioning ourselves about our own biases and how we feel in our own skin. Think about the stories you share with others and how you talk about the skin color of others. Don't filter your photos. To make your skin look lighter, don't avoid the sun because you're going to be too dark. If you're avoiding the sun, do it for health reasons. Don't use makeup that makes your skin look lighter. Try to have friends or even acquaintances that come from all walks of life. Stop liking or sharing memes that are offensive, especially when they have to do with colorism and race. And speak up when you hear something that's offensive, and listen and support those that have been impacted. The most important thing is to educate yourself something we try to do on a weekly basis with this podcast as we try to share our findings with each of you in a challenging and unbiased way.
0: Thanks for tuning in this week everyone and if you like what you hear we would love for you to give Mixed DNA a great rating. Follow or subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on any of our social media accounts Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast to join in on the conversation about this week's topic or any of our past topics. On our social media accounts is where we will post links to many of the references we've made in today's episode, as well as anything else interesting that pertains to today's topic. Until next time, everyone. Thanks again. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.